0: music mm-hmm. This is Jessica, and we have a wonderful episode tonight for uh, episode two nineteen. Um, I'm I'm flying solo, and we've got Jason Fry here joining me. Um, if you don't know Jason, well, uh, I think it's time to um, get out of TV and and films. It's time to get your hands on some Star Wars books because we have someone here who is such a prolific author, and he has has uh, you know. Contributed so much to so many different types of Star Wars literature over the years, and I'm just so excited to be able to talk with him today about his career and um, just kind of geek out about Star Wars in general. So, Jason, thank you so much for joining me tonight.
1: Thank you. I appreciate you having me. And geeking out about Star Wars is what I do. So let's do it.
0: Wonderful. Um, well, I I uh, think that the best place to start with something like this is you know just tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me about you know your um career and you know, have you always wanted to be a writer? How did you get involved in Star Wars? And are you surprised by where you ended up and what you do every
1: day? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm surprised all the time. And one thing I, you know, always tell myself is to like, you know, being a Star Wars author is full of these pinch me moments, whether Um, You know, you're suddenly in the middle of like an insane email thread with really, really amazing creative people about like how stun blasters work, just something that actually happened for Essential Guide to Warfare or, um, you know, just getting to work with other writers or just, you know, kind of looking in the mirror and being like, wow, I'm writing Star Wars, like how did that possibly happen? So I I think about that all the time and, you know, never get jaded about it. You know, I'm incredibly lucky to be able to do this. There are many, many people uh, more talented than me who love Star Wars just as much, if not more. Well, maybe not more, but just as much, you know, who don't get to do this. And I I think about that all the time. And, you know, one of the amazing things I'll add about being a Star Wars author too is that I have never met a single other writer or creative person who doesn't feel the same way. Who doesn't feel like, you know, this is an amazing chance and a huge responsibility. And doesn't um, come at any project. Um, You know, everyone I've ever known comes at a project from the standpoint of loving Star Wars and wanting to do right by it, which is really kind of amazing to see. Um, Yes, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, um, even before there was a Star Wars. I mean, I was born in 1969, so I was writing little stories and things like that before I ever got to see uh, Star Wars. And so I was eight years old when the movie came out, and it just, immediately had a huge impact on me. I mean, I, I love stories, um, but I'd never imagined there'd be stories like that. I mean, that were you know, full of cool stuff, but also had these kind of you know, hidden depths to them, which I didn't, couldn't really articulate at 8, but I knew they were there, that they were about family and values and good and evil and making your way you know, through the world with your destiny and other things like that, which is really essentially what stories are uh fundamentally and so you know I like to say and it's true that you know by the t- you know Darth Vader's ship is coming across the screen and it keeps coming and coming and coming forever and by the time I saw the engines that ship uh, my life was different and you know everything since then has been just you know good luck and writing everything I can and some of it got to be Star Wars
0: yeah it strikes me that uh you know I don't think that I've talked to a single Star Wars author. I don't think I've listened to any interview with a single Star Wars author who doesn't have that exact same feeling of I'm writing for Star Wars. I mean, that's such a cool thing to be able to, um, you know, just be able to contribute to and never, never really have it become a a common thing. But um, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it strikes me that uh, there are so many people who are still contributing today who you know, have been around and 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 saw the originals as they were coming out, and it just really strikes me like the staying power of this franchise and the fact that like when it latches onto you, it just really doesn't let go. And not only that, but it has such staying power among the generations. And I, I don't know what what do you think gives it that staying power
1: oh it's i mean it's a mix of things i mean part of it is that it's really fun i mean it's got you know laser swords and pew pew and you know cool special effects and all this you know stuff that's really fun to look at and that's great um but also i think it's again it's that it's it's deep themes um, you know lucas loved to talk about uh joseph campbell and hero with a thousand faces etc you know frankly i think some of that came a little later after george got a little self-conscious about it i think in the beginning i think he just couldn't get the rights to flash gordon but you know that's fine um but you know all those things are definitely in there and you know it's every star wars story has has you know surprising depths to it and it makes you those depths and those characters and the world building and everything else i mean when a star wars story works you want to stay with it you want to kind of see around corners and know more about these characters and you know, know about the history of the ships and all this stuff and um you know that's i mean one thing i'm careful about is that's not a substitute for the storytelling the story has to work but if the story works then you know the way to stay with it longer is through things like that which is really great um the other thing i love about it is it's kind of endlessly renewing i mean you know i was an original trilogy kid i mean like Pretty much every dude in his mid fifties, like The Empire Strikes Back, is my favorite movie. Um, but you know, there's a whole generation of prequel kids who are not kids anymore, and then there are sequel trilogy kids. Um, you know, when my own kids started watching Star Wars, it was right early in the Clone Wars, and you know that was uh, that was their Star Wars and something where they could start off on, a, on an equal footing, and you didn't you know, didn't feel like you were kind of um, left behind by not having, you know, 20 years of experience in it. Um, same thing, you know, with the High Republic books now, etc. So um, the fact that it's endlessly renewing, but those stories kind of all draw from the same well and have the same values, I think is, is a great, uh, great kind of secret weapon for the franchise.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. And, uh, you know, hopefully that won't ever change. I I think that uh, it's so fun to be able to have a franchise that exists in so many different mediums. And it's great to be able to have the films, have these TV shows, have the novels, have the books, but you know, I mean, for you, like it's, it's, it goes beyond that. I am such a huge fan of the reference books. Um, My, I have two history degrees. And so I have, I have joked many times that my history degrees have served me far better in analyzing a galaxy far far away than it ever has <laughs> <laughs> in terms of you know anything that's resulted in making me money in the real world but um i guess yeah, that's you, just you can see that we're
1: faking it oh a little punic wars there and you know the popes and anti-popes or whatever it is yeah definitely
0: well that's what's so fun is to be able to um, see the places where, where, you know, George and other storytellers were drawing such inspiration, not only from the world that they knew and, yeah. um, you know, the, the politics and culture and fears of their day, but then yeah. seeing when, um, y- 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 you just, you just see it in little ways, um, other places. I mean, I've already told you and everybody's very well aware that I'm a Mando person and I love, um, Duchess Satine. I love yeah. the fact that Satine was based on Queen Elizabeth. She's my, like, my, my, my degree is in Reformation history. My, yeah. my, my specialty is in the English Reformation and, and uh, Elizabeth I. And so when I, when I got into Star Wars, and I, I was a casual fan forever, and then I consider myself a pandemic baby.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. I, f- I found the Clone Wars during the pandemic. And, oh, God, what uh, a
1: perfect time for it.
0: So perfect. So perfect. And and for whatever reason, that was really what made it all come alive. And it's been, you know, what, you know, three years now. And uh, this is this is three years worth of Star Wars. Oh, wow. So wow. Yeah. So it's, it's just it's fun to see um, from my point of view um, where that history really impacts the storytelling, because I think that it's a little bit different um, with a franchise like this you know, Star Wars, it's, it's space fantasy. It is, it's, this, it's this mythology. It's the, these big plot heavy stories where like, it really just leans into those really like those mythic tropes. Whereas for me personally, I see like something like Star Trek, you know, something that's a little bit more quintessentially sci-fi that to me is more of like the vehicle for um, you know, exploring philosophical ideas, you know, to, to me, Star Trek is the the first episode of Next Gen where they get put on trial for the sins of humanity. Like that is, that's the vehicle that I see for, for Star Trek, whereas Star Wars is just so plot heavy. And it's those stories that just kind of draw you in. Um, it truly is our modern mythology. And so, I mean, it really does. It has a power that I think transcends yeah. a lot of other stories today. Yeah,
1: yeah. 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 And self-aware myth-making, which is kind of mm-hmm. interesting, but again, I always maintain, you know, the, the self-aware mythmaking part wouldn't work if the stories weren't, um, weren't super fun. Um, when I, when I, um, I sat down with Ryan Johnson to talk about the last, uh, Jedi novelization, um, he told me something that has become just a commandment of mine for storytelling, but I think is also a really, really great lens uh, for Star Wars. He said that in talking about, Uh, the story of the last jedi he was like there's lots of lots of of heavy stuff in there and really kind of moments that kind of hit hard and that are weighty and he said but he always made sure that you were just a scene or two away from something light and flash gordoning and Mm -hmm. i thought that was that was not only great advice for star wars and kind of a peek at the blueprint um but also just great advice for storytelling period so um yeah um yeah, yeah so you know, I, I should really write that like, you know, above my desk here. Um, but uh, yeah, great commandment. And again, part of kind of the, the secrets sauce.
0: Yeah. So how did it all begin? What, what, what was the, the first project? What was the first thing that got you um, working in this franchise?
1: Um, I was a, it, it was very funny. I, my friend, uh, Daniel Wallace, who I co-wrote The Essential Atlas with um, he was somebody I knew on America Online message boards a trillion years ago, We're talking like kind of the early 90s. Um, we were part of a, a little community, which, you know, a surprising number of people went on to do Star Wars stuff. It was actually pretty great. Um, and uh, Dan was working on the essential guide to planets and moons, um, one of the kind of OG first generation uh, essential guides from Delray and i would always been fascinated by star wars geography and i would kept like this big crazy list of the planets etc um, and but i didn't want dan who i didn't actually know i'd never met him to feel like i was stepping on his turf so i eventually gave it to him after the after his book came out and he was like why did you give me why didn't you give this to me when i was working on the book it would have been really useful like what are you doing um, and so we got to be friends that way. And, you know, he had been obviously vetted uh, by Lucasfilm, so he could write that. And he spoke up for me. And I actually got vetted to work on the old West End Games uh, adventure journal, uh, okay. which has a lot of kind of amazing lore in it, but was also a chance to be experimental. And it was also, I mean, really, now that I think about it, I haven't thought about this before, but it was actually the blueprint for what I've done since then. Like it had short stories and lore and it you know, was kind of a bunch of wacky stuff too. Uh, so I got vetted to do that. And then West End Games, which actually weirdly was kind of financially an offshoot of a shoe company. Like it's very strange, Google it. Um, like they got overextended and the company shut down. And I was just, I remember being crushed. I was like, that was my chance. You know I got vetted to do something and now the company doesn't exist anymore and you know that was it I'm gonna regret this forever um but you know Dan and I kept talking and eventually I got a gig as the book columnist for the Star Wars Insider okay um, which was amazing and I, I got that not because I was a Star Wars fan but because I was a journalist uh, I was working for the online arm of the Wall Street Journal at the time so you know, I had a track record in being able to write and being able to, you know, work with editors and hit deadlines and all that. Uh, but the insider gig was really fun. Like every month I got to talk to a Star Wars author and take apart how they did what they did. Um, you know, which for a, a budding writer was also, you know, a great way to pick fellow writers' brains and actually get paid for it. Um, and I just went from there and eventually we, um, you know, I, I think my first credit was for Wizards of the Coast it's basically um, RPG stuff where, you now I arm myself with my knowledge of first generation advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which was like hopelessly out of date. But so I would send in these stats and think, oh God, that's a total mess. Um, and I think poor wizards just like published them as <laughs> is yes. So I don't know if any of that stuff was ever playable, but um, you know, I did the best I could. And from there, I just, I would do you know, I just, I loved writing Star Wars and getting to contribute to that universe in any way that, um, you know, if anybody had a gig for me, I'd take it. And eventually that led the the first kind of big book was uh, DK um, asked me to do the first Clone Wars visual guide, uh, which was ahead of uh, the movie and the first series. Um, and that was really fun and we just went from there and The Essential Atlas followed and eventually- Is that this um, one? Got, uh, actually, that's the that's second new- or third one. Um, here, hang on since we have visuals. Um, you know, and eventually I did fiction and, and everything kind of went from there. Oh God, I got to find it in these shelves. Here, talk to me while I'm doing this foolish errand. <laughs> oh, here we go. That's the limited collector's edition. I don't know. What oh
0: that wow! Is. Yeah, I I've never seen that one, but on uh, Google. Oh, Images. it's got
1: prints in the back. I totally forgot that. Cool. I should put it on eBay. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that.
0: <laughs> that's that's how I am too. I think you know you you uh, collect these things, and uh, I'm I'm one of those collectors where I'm like I collect for myself. Like this is, I I can't imagine getting rid of. Uh, the books and everything that that I've gotten. So, yeah, yeah the okay, one problem so- is I have a
1: New York City apartment, so you can see like all this mess, and so everything kind of has to justify its square, justified square footage. So I live in an I live I'm in an like, attic, live, so okay. probably
0: the same thing. Yeah, this is my yeah, corner, yeah. and this is kind of where everything has to stay. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, we make the sacrifices.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: But okay, so so that's that's really cool. So I I love I love hearing that. What I thought was really interesting is to hear that even back then, early 90s, you were finding connections in those early online communities. Um, You know, that's stuff that I feel like, I mean, that's very much my experience is growing up in those fandom spaces. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, even today, Discord, Tumblr, uh, Twitter, of course, like all of these different places where people um, congregate kind of just to, um, you know, be there for the love of this shared you know media yeah. and uh, it's it just strikes me that like people have always started to seek each other out that way as soon as the technology was available but it was so cool that like as you as you said like in those early spaces a significant number of you ended up actually being able to go on and contribute that's pretty cool
1: yeah and I you know I think we have all had the same experience I and mean, it was just such a um it was just such a miracle finding you know people in this suddenly opened up virtual world who cared about the geeky thing you cared about. And, um, I mean, that was so amazing. And I think such a, you know, such a, um, you know, such an experience for so many members of, of niche and then not so niche communities. Um, yeah, I mean, the the whole world is open to you. I mean, for, for good and sometimes for bad, but, um, um yeah it was just oh gosh it was yeah and actually i was you know i'm a huge new york mets fan and i did the same thing i was living down outside dc and i would you know hang around on message boards with other met fans like commiserating and you know one of those people is still one of my best friends we write a blog together so yeah absolutely absolutely formative in really wonderful ways
0: so then in that um you've seen this whole evolution of this internet culture. yeah. Um, And with it, of course, you've seen the changes in the ways that creators are able to interact with fans. And I mean, a lot of that I think has to do, you know, there's not only the the evolution of the technology that's available, things like Twitter kind of breaking down walls between fans and creators for good or for bad. Um, But then also, you know, I, I, uh, remember sam witwer saying something about how you know in those early days they really were uh you know telling stories for themselves you know being able to to make the clone wars um you know especially with george lucas's involvement and you know well received but definitely not being taken notice of as it's airing yeah and it just strikes me then that like the 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 fandom during that period, which for for the majority of the culture, for the people who are just kind of like the casual Star Wars fans who go to the the theater, you know, they probably look at that era and be like, oh, well, there's nothing going on in Star Wars. I mean, you know, what was coming out was animation. That's just for kids, right? And so, like, you know, you go from that and then it's acquired by Disney, and then things just change at the same time that this internet culture is really flourishing in terms of a place for people to be able to meet and not only just meet you know on on um kind of private forums and servers and stuff but very publicly with things like twitter so how how have you seen that evolution of fandom and what have what have you enjoyed about the changes and maybe what what do you wish you could go back to
1: oh i mean that's a, a really interesting question um it's, I suppose it's, it's kind of like the parable that's not true about the, you know, the frog and the, and the water that slowly starts to boil so you don't kind of notice. Um In that, I mean, it was a, it was always a super gradual thing for me because, you know, I mean, dating back to AOL days, you know, the level of engagement, um, you know, kind of built slowly. Um, with each, I mean, I never did MySpace or anything like that, but it would build slowly with um, Facebook and Tumblr and Twitter. And then as well as, you know, Outpost dedicated uh, to Star Wars. Like I, I mean, I still have an account like on the force.net message boards and things like that. Um, You know, so that was, I mean, that was interesting to see. And actually in a weird way, kind of paralleled my career going from, you know, doing more and more things and, you know and and i don't like the word high profile because I've, I've genuinely loved 99 percent of the things i've done whatever they were um but you know it was certainly perceived that way um you know i mean fandom today is is such an interesting thing i mean there are so many layers to it i mean there's a layer of you know there's a layer for people for whom Star Wars is a good grift. I mean, it's good culture war stuff and you can get a rise out of people, et cetera. And, you know, I think I've blocked all those people cause I just don't have time for that. Um, and there's a level, there's a kind of a clickbait layer where, you know, every little tidbit of information gets spun into kind of a useless article. And, you know, I don't really have much time for that cause who does? Um, But, you know, below that, there's a huge level of of, um, fan engagement and creators, um, you know, talking to each other and talking to fans. And, you know, I love it when all those lines get get jumbled up as they should, you know, and even then, you know, there are people who, you know, love things, people who passionately hate things, etc. And there's still a lot of tumult there. But, you know, I feel like ninety nine point five percent of that stuff all comes from a place of love and engagement and wanting the best for something. And, you know, even the even the actions interactions where you you kind of wish one party, if not both, had taken a step back and done things a little differently, like they're generally coming from a place of passion, et cetera. And that's that's, you know, and that's great. And you know, also, I mean, it's super important to remember, you know, the touch grass thing is, you know, most of the world is still lived outside uh, these virtual communities. And it's the same thing, like, you know, 99.5% of my interactions, um, you know, out there at cons and book signings, et cetera, have been wonderful. And I've left them feeling super energized, et cetera. You know, even if they're with people whose, you know, first thing is like, I really hated The Last Jedi or whatever, because, you know, you've got common ground and you talk and The vast majority of times it's wonderful. Um, So I don't know, I mean, it's interesting, but um, I mean, I suppose the thing is like, if you'd shown me what this world would be like in the, I mean, gosh, on the AOL message boards or even in the late nineties or the late aughts, I would have been like, that sounds really complicated and astonishing. I don't know if I'll be able to do that, but you know, we've all kind of gotten used to it and learned to find our way in it for the most part.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure that, you know, as that evolution occurred, you know, there. I'm just kind of thinking at the the end of the Clone Wars era. You know, I know that there there was a time when Dave Filoni was on Twitter. You know, there was there was there was a time when those walls were even more broken down, um, before we had to deal with such an onslaught of of people that it just kind of you know it got easier for. A number of people to just kind of retreat, and I certainly don't blame any of them. Uh, it's It's always surprising to me that there's still enough creators on on Twitter um, in general, because I'm like, I don't know if I would take that. But um I mean, yeah, you you have kind of been at the forefront. I mean, you wrote the novelization for the Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. When you were writing it, did you have a sense that this was going to be as controversial as it became?
1: Uh, no, but, um, but it's not quite that simple. Um, I actually read the script for The Last Jedi before I saw The Force Awakens, which was a very strange experience, um, because at that point I was kind of plugged in in ways that I, I no longer am, and so, you know, had a kind of a sense of what was coming. Um, and I remember, I remember... I read it and I thought there was a lot of interesting stuff in it, but I didn't know how I felt about it at first. Um, And I kind of needed some time to sit with that story and think about it a little. And over like, you know, a week or two, I saw what it was trying to do and started to admire what it was trying to do and um, was really struck by the ways in which it was finding new ground for Star Wars. While I thought, Thoroughly respecting what had come and using that as the building blocks of a story. Um, So when it came out, I I was surprised by the, I mean, look, it wasn't everybody, it wasn't even a majority of people, but I was surprised by the wing of people who, for whom it didn't work, let's put it that way. Um, But then I remembered that I had needed a little time to sit with that story too and thought, you know, everybody deserves that. And one of the unfortunate hallmarks of our era is that people have somehow got it into their heads they have to immediately have an opinion and react to things. And I think, you know, some you kids out there, some underutilized phrases to try out. I don't know. I need to think about that a while. I'm not sure. You know, that's That's an interesting. That's an interesting opinion. Um, But
0: I haven't thought about it that way.
1: Exactly. I I don't have an opinion. That one's also fun. So, you know, I was like, everybody deserves some time to sit with this story. And one thing that was funny is that that novelization was the first novelization that did not come out with the film, which usually meant a couple weeks before the film, which meant, you know, everybody like, you know, you could kind of spoil the movie by reading it, et cetera, and stuff would leak out of, out of like the printing plants and you know all this all this stuff but i remember i was very disappointed at first that my book was the first one that was actually going to come out with the dvd um because that seemed like an impossibly long time after the movie and i was like oh we're gonna lose our buzz and like bestseller ranking and, blah, and all this nonsense um but i actually wound up feeling very lucky that that had happened because i thought that was actually a really good time for it um it was actually a really good time for people who had loved the movie to want to engage with it again and here is the novelization and also frankly for people who the movie maybe hadn't worked for them in the theaters to give the story another shot and think about it differently and so you know and some of my most rewarding interactions have been uh with people who were like well i didn't know how i felt about the last shot at first but you know i read your novelization and saw some stuff in it went back to the movie and really enjoyed it more Like that's great. And you know, that's a something great that a novelization can do sometimes. So that's a very rambling, complicated answer. Um, no, I didn't see it coming, but in hindsight, I mean, it's a it's a difficult movie, it's not an obvious popcorn movie. I guess the place where I differ from you know, really fierce critics of The Last Jedi, and you know, look, I respect their opinion, we're all entitled to it, is that you know, yes, the Last Jedi in some ways deconstructs Star Wars heroism and makes us question some things, um, you know, it's not going to go the way you think. Um, But at the end, the way I see it is that it's ultimately a reaffirmation of all those things. And the the sequence that always gets it for me is Luke says, you know, scornfully, almost spitefully to Ray, like, did you think I was going to take a laser sword and go out and face down the First Order myself? And in the end, that's exactly what he does. And the fact that he's a projection doesn't change that one bit in my mind. So, you know, that kind of calculus makes the movie work for me and work really wonderfully well. But, you know, I can see how it might not work for other people and that's fine.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I remember feeling those very strong feelings and it was really interesting because at that time, that was pre-pandemic. So that was like back in my casual fan days. Yeah, yeah, but even yeah. then, I remember having some very strong feelings about it. And you know, but for me, I think that um it kind of gets down to what we were talking about before, this idea of mythology. I think that for me, the real difference is that subversion of of you know, it's it 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 really is playing with that idea of mythos. And I just kind of feel like like to me when I watch then Rise of Skywalker, it's like, I can try, I can see JJ Abrams trying desperately to rewrite this train that's been blown off its tracks and say, this is still mythology. (laughs) This is still our story. And it's, it's so interesting the way that, um, you know, Ryan Johnson wanted to subvert that, but like you said, like still like, like try, you know, not take away the power behind it, but just kind of, Throw everybody on their heads a little bit, and I uh I feel that I appreciate it a little bit, but I feel that, but I, I appreciate that, um, you know, l- with your novelization, which I'm going through right now, I have not finished it, but um, what I do really love is like you said, there is a purpose that novelizations can have. You know, I, I do think that I criticize the sequels a bit, in just in terms of there ended up being an awful lot of information that got. Yeah, given to fans in ways that were not on screen. And I kind of look at that and I'm just kind of like, Ugh, you know, what are we saying when we are telling our audience, like you don't get the full experience unless you you know what was it? There was something that came out in like a Minecraft game or something. <laughs> there, was, there was something yeah. Fortnite. Yeah, that's what it was. And and that's where I'm like I I don't know really what that speaks to but what I do love is that with things like novelizations you're able to I think kind of smooth the edges I think that um kind of in the same way that the prequels had such a rocky reception and then you know I, I first off over the years you know in in the same way that Ewan McGregor always talks about the fact that like the prequels were made for kids, and that it's those kids who grew up with an appreciation for them. I think that everything, um, you know, all all movies, all initial reactions kind of get smoothed over a bit um, because the fans who think that something doesn't fit eventually will give way to the people who it's always fit for them because they saw it all together. Yeah. But um, it is just really cool to see that um when you're able to take a novelization and you do such a nice job of not just translating what is on the screen from image to text but also diving into the characters psyches and and getting their motivations and really giving people a reason for like why you can trust what you're seeing on screen that's what i think is is a hallmark of the best novelizations. And I've always felt like you do that just wonderfully, but um, what what do you think makes for an effective novelization?
1: Well, it was interesting. I mean, I, The Last Jedi was such, I mean, I had done um, some Clone Wars novelizations, et cetera. So I wasn't brand new to it. Um, But The Last Jedi was a special case because the director was also the writer. and I mean, I agree. and actually, interestingly, one of the things that that Ryan told me sitting with him is, as a kid, he would read the novelizations of movies he wasn't allowed to see. And so they were really important to him. And that's I, I think why he met with me in the first place, because, you know he he cared about this, having had that experience. Um, another thing he did for me that was just extraordinary was he said, you know, I'm gonna give you access to all the previous iterations of the script and, you know, anything you think you can use, go for it, um, which was incredibly generous. A lot of creators uh, would not have done that. Um, he was just generous and kind from the start. He was like, you know, if you're having any trouble, you know, you know, call me up, et cetera, which I didn't do because when I first met him, he was in the final stages of like, I think the sound mix um, for Last Jedi and, you know, then I was working on this like frantic uh, pace, but I thought about it a couple times, but I was like, the man just made a Star Wars movie. I was like, let him rest, leave the man alone. Like if anyone deserves a break, it's Ryan Johnson. Um, the other reason though, that I really didn't have to bug him was, um, you know, that script has never been published. But um, one of the things that's remarkable about it, it is very interior. Um, A lot of of the script describes exactly what characters are thinking, what they're feeling, et cetera, um, along with the action, which is not true in some scripts. Um, And that's often one of the things that a novelization can do, but the novelization author may be missing. Uh, But it was pretty much all there. So I had the characters' motivations where they were in their heads. Etc. Because Ryan had already given it to me, um, so that was that was interesting. Um, the biggest challenge is actually the biggest challenge in that book by far was a, a really interesting scene. You know the the Rashomon scenes where you get um, uh, you get uh, Luke and Kyle remembering things, um, and then. Ray is finally. She's telling her experience um, in the cave, and it starts with her. She's speaking into the camera, and you assume she's talking to Luke. And the surprise—it's like a record scratch—is she's, she's talking to Kylo. And I was like, "How in the world do you do that? How do I create that? Because it's entirely like a visual thing, like." we're gonna switch perspectives and, and oh, it's Kylo, it's not Luke. I was like, how do you do that in novelization? novelization? Um, that was really, really hard. I didn't have an answer and I walked around for like days uh, trying to figure it out. Um, so yeah, I mean, look back, the, the Rashomon scenes were, I knew how to do that. I was like, we're gonna use, we're gonna introduce each scene and the language is gonna be parallel, almost exact. And then the differences will stand out more. Um, So that one I had down, but that how to recreate Ryan's using visual language to surprise the audience. That was a huge, huge challenge. Um, So yeah, if you haven't read the novelization, read it and tell me me what you think of my idea. Um, But beyond that, it was also, it was just fun. I mean, whether it was using, you know, additional dialogue for particularly like Finn and Rose. You know, I loved having more dialogue for them or incorporating deleted scenes. Um, or, you know, there were some scenes in there that either I wanted and thought up on my own or, you know, I talked through with Lucasfilm and we decided uh, to do. I mean, it was just all a blast. It really was.
0: It must be a lot of fun to be able to be in that place where you get access to those things that, you know, I mean, like you said, there is no reason a creator has to show you early scripts or whatnot. You know that these yeah. things are probably never going to see the light of day, and yet you get to not only enjoy them in their original, um, you know, primary form, but then be able to translate some of that for other people's enjoyment too. That's so just that's really exciting.
1: Oh yeah, no, it's amazing. I, I'll tell you uh, two quick stories from that that I, I find kind of entertaining. Though um, one thing we didn't get to do. Um, there was an earlier version of um, Rose and Finn finding the master codebreaker in which they actually go on a heist with him and it like immediately goes wrong and he gets like basically hauled off in a net by helicopters <laughs> and then they like close in and put Finn and Rose in jail like you know it's the same kind of record scratch moment and you they wind up the same way they, they did but I love that scene because there was a lot of physical comedy in it and a lot of like kind of fun back and forth between Finn and Rose and so I wanted to do that scene instead of the one in the movie and we actually so I wrote that and it was in there until the last weekend like we were done they were holding like printers to print this out and I was like yes did it and then um, and then literally on the last weekend somebody was like I don't think a novelization should depart from you know the the movie story quite this thoroughly, so can you put that back? Which in hindsight was the right call. It was it was pushing it too far. So I, I don't I don't bemoan the call at all. But that scene was really fun. So I'm waiting for some kind of anniversary where we can you know find some place that'll publish the alternate version. Um, the uh, what was I going with this? um i don't remember this but it's oh oh yeah no i do remember sorry so i did the funny thing was i was writing off the script etc and, and of course you know i hadn't seen the movie um but they did arrange a screening for me in november uh before uh the movie came out in december and it was like in in burbank you know in like a disney facility and um so I went down there and met some some Lucasfilm people there. And um, it's a little screening room. And it's like, I thought I were gonna be in a theater. Like what's gonna happen? We're, you're just in a little screening room with a couple of seats and it's pitch black. Like they just shut the lights off and the movie starts and it's pitch black. And I had a notebook with me, you know, to write down, you know, things that I wanted to incorporate figuring this was kind of a polished pass to get little things that I didn't have. And within 10 minutes, I realized the script I'd been working from was not the final script. Mm There had been another iteration. And actually the whole first like 20% of the movie was sequenced utterly differently. And I was like, and kind of panicked there in the dark. And so I started frantically writing notes and I get out, I got out of the theater and looked down at my notes. And because I couldn't see like, all the notes were basically on the same line. <laughs> and it was just this sea of ink and they were all useless. And so I just you know, kind of had to do the best I could. And somebody asked me like, um, you know, a, a couple of the, the um, kind of Luke um, speeches to Ray about like the Jedi texts, et cetera, and are not quite what's in the movie. And I'm like, I did the best I could. I couldn't read my notes in the dark, sorry. But um, no, the whole but the whole experience was so much fun, and um, you know, like I said, even the the missteps and mistakes like that, you know, I still enjoy. It was all part of kind of this crazy process and this great roller coaster ride.
0: Well, it strikes me too that it's a good reminder that this kind of work is very dynamic, and it's e- e- even in something like this where you are the sole writer of the novelization, it's a collaborative process. Yeah. And it, it, um, you know, I, I think that there's very few art forms that are truly individualistic. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a theater person. I'm, yeah. you know, it's, theater is, you know, it's just inherently collaborative. You know, even one person shows cannot be truly right. one person shows. But, um, you know, that that was another thing that I kind of wanted to talk about. You know, both in terms of, um, you know, I don't you know remember how much uh you recall all of those novelizations that you did for clone wars but um you know i mentioned that i'm a really big fan of the one that you did of the uh, the lawless arc in season five with um maul's revenge and and mandalore and, shadow um,
1: conspiracy
0: shadow conspiracy what yes yes yeah. that's that's it and um that one, I, I mean, first off, I have to say, you're, you're, the, the book is very well received, and we we quite love it over on um, the Obatine Discord server, so um, they're very excited for this. Um, you are still currently, I believe, the only person who has written Satine from her point of view. We did get, we got a little bit of her in... Oh, wow, um, was that true? Yeah, we got we got a little glimpse of her in um, Brotherhood, which came out last uh... year, and um, but uh we that is still the the only time that she's been able to have content in text from her point of view and I that's tragic we need
1: more point of view
0: (laughs) that's what I'm saying like it doesn't even have
1: to be me like let's let's let a bunch of people do that that'd be wonderful
0: I I agree Uh, but to be fair you are still first on my list of who I want to see ever tackle like a, a novel of of uh Obi-Wan and Satine on the run or things like that oh thank
1: you that'd be so much fun
0: that'd be a lot of fun
1: I love Dave Filoni he's been a godsend for Star Wars and as a fan I am so happy with everything he's done the fact that he is still doing it but but that was a a super fun book but it's interesting we've been talking about kind of differences um looking back on the differences there um kind of in the experience we're, were great like you know the the Clone Wars scripts um talk about collaborative processes too i mean all those um episodes are such wonderful collaborations between you know dave the writers the you know the animators the cinematographers etc that it's interesting to look back at the strips compared to the finished product project uh product and see you know how they evolved um but like you know, for instance, there's not very much in the, uh, in the kind of mall pre-Visla fights in terms of direction. I mean, it's basically kind of, they fight because you didn't need to script that. They would figure it out collaboratively. And it's wonderful. I mean, I think it's one of the best saber fights in star Wars, frankly, including the movies and everything else. Um, and, you know, all came from Dave and his team doing amazing work together. Um, but as a, you know as a novelizer that was a huge challenge because then you know there wasn't footage there wasn't previews to see or anything like that so i had to kind of figure out how to navigate that and the way i did it was like i can't capture the kinetic excitement of a lightsaber fight on the page it's kind of not going to work um so i kind of rooted it in the characters kind of where are they what are they trying to do You know, are they surprised? Can they feel themselves losing, et cetera? I thought that was the way um, into it. Um, The other thing I always think about with the Clone Wars, there's that um, the wonderful episode. His name, I shamefully forget. With um, with Ventress on the kind of quartz underground planet, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, with the the train and and the and the um, the the hostages, and um, you know that episode in script form read like kind of a train caper and i was yeah. like okay um but when you see it it is so amazing and visually striking and the characters like Singer the bounty hunting droid is one of the most amazing characters in star wars and the the fighting but also just the mood of it the colors etc i mean it's one of my favorite episodes in the clone wars but you'd never know from the script um not that the script was bad the script was obviously great but the script was a starting point for as you say this kind of amazing collaboration so i mean that was so much fun to see and, and so much um you know it's so amazing to see develop but yeah no the, those experiences definitely do um you know sum it up how much this has changed
0: for sure and interesting that that in both of these books you know you're you're kind of pulling out um these these moments where it's not a one-to-one translation. There is yeah. stuff that you can do on screen that you cannot do the same way in text, and vice versa. I mean, that's that's why a script yeah. often doesn't have everything in there because, like you said, the the, the visuals happen in just yeah. a different form. So, um,
1: actually, there's, sorry if you'll indulge me. There's one more funny thing I remember from that. Um, in Shadow Conspiracy, I really wanted. I really wanted to see Anakin hand over the twilight to Obi-Wan. I was like, why isn't that in there? Like, come on, I want to see that, I want to see that. And I had no idea that they had actually scripted that. And then I think it, you know, they'd cut it before whatever got to me. And it was, I mean, it was only I think a year ago or so that we actually got to see a previs of that scene um, and get to hear what they were saying to each other. And That was, as someone who had imagine that with no references, that was really fascinating to watch. Like okay. a storyteller I immensely respect. How are they going to do it? Um, And then compare it to mine. So that was a lot of fun.
0: Okay, I'll, I might have to send you a post because I've done a, a kind of an in-depth look into the differences between those two scenes. Oh, really? I, I'm, I'm somehow shocked and not shocked that you didn't really have... Like, I, I figured that that was just in the original script because, I mean, it does seem like, you know, the the, the final was definitely going through previous I mean the actors hadn't recorded the lines but like it was far enough along that I just assumed that it probably was in there but the 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 mood is very very different yeah I really appreciate that that yours is very much this understanding of like Obi-Wan recognizes that he can't bring Anakin with him. Like he has to do this alone. He doesn't want to get Anakin in trouble. Whereas I'm not as big of a fan of the deleted scene that that we see where it's played a little bit more lighthearted and humorously. Where like, it's like Anakin doesn't really get how heavy this situation is. And so no, I no, I just, I love that scene. That's probably my favorite scene of the entire novelization. And it's precisely because I just love seeing that connection between obi-wan and anakin
1: oh thank you no it's um yeah it was a lot it was was a lot of fun but the whole thing was fun i mean i'm mad at dave about that one thing but thank god for dave filoni i mean it's just i'm i'm always so thrilled to see what he what he's going to work on next
0: yeah it's not even that (laughs) bad of course um but but yeah you know but before i i we, we, we change the topic I just have to gush a little bit too about you know I, it is really interesting to see again that dynamism like as as these things are changing because like Satine's final words are completely different and I've I've written a little bit on on that too like how intriguing it is that like in that final scene what we see is her focusing on Obi-Wan she tells him that she's always loved him that she always will and that's the moment that we're left with which is such an intriguing moment in and of itself because I feel like you have to pair that with the fact that like her last words to him are I love you and I always will and Anakin's last words to him are I hate you Mm. and it's just like that that moment where it's like he's lost both of these people who are just you know these experiences are so so different but um, I actually really do love what's in the novelization which is that she doesn't really focus on him not at least not in terms of like her final words she says something like um like basically remain true to yourself because i always did and like you know maybe i'll have to to find it but like it's it's really an interesting um choice for um just a second here um she says remember my dear obi-wan no matter what don't let go of what you believe in i never did and I've always thought that like, I, I really do like that one too, because they're both characters who have so much integrity. Yeah. And I like that it's that moment where you kind of see that like, this is like the first big loss for him at the end of, you know, like at the start of Revenge of the Sith. Like, this is like, I mean, I think that this is like the first big thing that happens in the year 19 BBY. It kind of, it's kind of the death <laughs> knell of peace in yeah. the galaxy. Yeah. Um, and it just kind of strikes me that like he's going to go through all of these losses, and he never does fall. He never loses that integrity that he has. And I love that she's the one who tells them that she held fast. He needs to hold fast, and he does.
1: It's also I, I did not know the Elizabeth the first thing, um, but that feels very Elizabeth the first. So
0: yeah, it. Ap- I mean, ap- apparently it's. I mean, it's. It's Elizabeth the first, but it's Kate Blanchett's Elizabeth the first it's it's the two movies that came out, which was always really interesting because the first movie that she did came out 1998 so right around Phantom Menace right around when she would have been kind of the same age Satine was, and then the second one came out just as they were starting Clone Wars, which again, like works out just really perfectly. Right. And so that was golden age. And so like, yeah, I mean, this is so interesting, very fascinating the way that they kind of adapted, like, like the movie itself, you can, if you watch it, which it's a little mature, don't watch it with the kids around. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's really interesting because it's, um, there There are, there are scenes, there are full lines of dialogue that just sound like they're coming directly out of Satine's mouth. And it's, it's very much playing with that idea, like, like strip away the cultural context. You can see why it would have inspired something, you know, this, this Catholic Protestant divide going into this pacifist death watch um, divide, where there's just so much difficulty of like, how do we live together? Like, how do we, how do we pursue um, a culture? You know, I, the, the reason why I have always felt so strongly. I mean, I just I love Pre-Vizla as a villain. And the reason I love him is because you kind of get it. You get that he's this person who really cares about Mandalore and he just has a very different view. I always love that like in one of the behind the scenes features, Dave talks about how they, you know, they gave him this look of a hero. You know, they just gave him this, you know, yeah. long, tall and lean with this, you know, this kind of wavy blonde hair. And it was all because he
1: is the hero of his own story got the little superman spit curl and yeah
0: yep exactly and giving him a name that's genius i'd never
1: heard that but yeah totally
0: and even the name pre was supposed to kind of recall words like preeminence kind of like first like he's the hero of this so um yeah no i just i i i always felt like like the mandalore story especially that we saw in the clone wars and now even into you know rebels and mando just it to me i don't know what you know it's what made the whole world come alive but that in and of itself has that same kind of mythological feel almost like a a, a like a story of like biblical epic kind of proportions yeah yeah, yeah. that uh, i associate with the jedi as well but i don't know just something that uh, has been uh, that that's that for some reason is the thing that has had the staying power for me <laughs> um and actually while, while we're on while we're on that topic what i also wanted to to bring up was
1: got my um, delivery
0: oh nice and, sorry for any
1: uh, any munching
0: well you know if you you shouldn't have it if you can't share so <laughs>
1: <laughs> go ahead Jessica I cut you off sorry
0: no, no not at all um but talking about pre this was this is such a fun book this is the the bounty hunters hunter code and uh you know to our listeners you know if you've never picked up some of these books that are you know they're they're made to be in universe kind of guides like they're just so interesting Because, like, at the end of this, like, obviously, lots and lots of stuff about different bounty hunters, but at the very end, we've got this kind of like death watch propaganda, this manifesto. And this, like, this is what gets me as somebody who loves history, as somebody who loves theater. Like, I think the thing that I love so much about this book and this section in particular is that it's just so efficient in terms of just conveying all of this information about this fictionalized world it's it builds itself as this kind of like you know primary document of historical significance it's got all of this stuff that you know a lot of stuff kind of being either pulled from inspired by or subverted by legends yeah um so interesting but then the other thing that i really love is that in these books you get other characters specifically in this case from the clone wars era and later uh who act like they're reading this book and then they you get their little notes in the mark yeah. in the in the, the margins and the thing that like the, the one that really i think is kind of cool is that there's one page as you're going through this death watch manifesto and it's written as if it's being written by tor vizsla who is again Legend's character, who yeah. currently is not canonized, but then I love that you get Django's note that says, "I wonder if Visla really wrote this. He was a thug. Sounds more like a priest or a row, maybe, or maybe the younger Visla. He seems to like speeches, and I just I love that because." There's so much information there that just kind of feels like you're kind of treasure hunting through like Django's ideas of like what would Django know about these people? Um, you know, and and then but then like going from Tor Vizla to, I mean, I'm assuming that that younger Vizla is pre. Is
1: that... Jessica, you froze.
0: Oh. Am I back yet? Yeah, you're back. All right. That is thought we were gonna get through an, an episode without any freezing. Um <laughs> But but yeah, that 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 comment, I just think that is just so fun because what you're seeing is is really, you know, Django's thoughts on these yeah. different people. Um, I'm assuming that that younger Visla is supposed to be pre um, unless I'm missing somebody else in in that. But it just just kind of fun because it's not really saying it is. It's just suggesting it., yeah. And it just strikes me as this really great way to kind of weave this tapestry. Um, and as a historian, I appreciate it all the more because we have so much of that where it's like you don't get all the answers given to you. So yeah. much is conjecture, so much is interpretation and you have to kind of be left with like okay, so like you have this document, what if Jane goes right? What if part of it was written, you know, previously? Um and you know, in in my head what I think of is like Previsla writing the rest of the manifesto especially when you start to get the mentions of Satine because obviously um Tor Visla wouldn't have been around at that point but writing as if he is Tor and writing as if he's he's trying to continue that that uh that that authoritative voice yeah and that so so yeah please pick up this book it is such a good read and there's you know several others you know Sith Jedi what other ones have been done lots there have been a couple of them
1: yeah no it's you you touched on something that's really fun in working in lore and kind of creative ambiguity um you know kind of one of the things you learn really quickly um with Star Wars uh Randy Stradley of, of Dark Horse Comics was the first one I heard say this which was when you define you confine so it was the idea of kind of leaving things open-ended um so you're not cutting off other uh, storytellers uh, narratives but there can be like you say there can be so much fun in that in kind of pointing at things suggesting things but kind of leaving things um ambiguous and things like the margin notes uh really work for that yeah no that was a super fun book um I got called in pretty late on that one um uh Dan Wallace and my 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 dear friend Ryder Wyndham uh were working on it and I think needed somebody to kind of you know, jump in and and take on some of the word count, and I was I was happy to do it because it was Mando stuff, and I thought it'd be really fun, and I wanted to work with them, um, and just away we went, and, and had a ball with it. Well, I
0: I think it's funny because I've I've seen people, who, you know, like, like I said, as a historian, I look at this and it's like I get exactly what you're going for with these, these kinds of primary documents, the that amb- ambiguity and the fact that like you're. You're not supposed to be able to pin everything down, and yeah. then I've seen people. I've seen people take this and like use it as like an argument against the pacifists. And I'm like, it's it's propaganda. I need you to understand that it is meant to be in in universe propaganda. And I think that uh, I mean, there's even been a fabulous uh, book um, that Pablo Hidalgo did on Star Wars and propaganda and all of those in universe elements. Which again, just to me as a historian just makes this world just sing with a reality that yeah. not every franchise has because it just feels like something that you would see in our world today.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And that's it's also it's just really fun to do. Um, you know, I did it in I wrote a, a solo tie in Tales um from Vandor, which is all this kind of tall tales that might get told in the bar and, and yeah. solo and oh my god that was such a blast because it's literally just you know you're just making stuff up and i would i brought in you know stuff from legends i brought read stuff from um han solo at star's end which is my favorite star wars book hands down legends or new canon um you know i brought in dash rendar just as a joke which you know reliably every 10 days somebody like on Twitter brings up that I brought back to and Dar and they're like either thrilled and want to like shake my hand or they're like like horrified and want to smack me but either way I'm like it's a reaction that's great um you know as well as just making stuff up but you just you never know where that goes I did that in Ray's Survival Guide too like Ray's Survival Guide is this crazy tall tale about the emperor like burying all this secret stuff in the Jakku deserts and then that turned into a major plot point in the aftermath trilogy and is informed like the first order in the unknown regions um so you never know but i mean that's part of the fun of being a, a you know a star wars storyteller whether it's a little story or a big one um is that you know the vast majority of authors treat it like a common sandbox and you've been yeah um given free reign to play with like greatest toys ever. But, you know, we all understand it's not, they're not our toys and you gotta share them. You can't take them with you when you leave. Somebody else is gonna pick them up and do something else with them. And that might be what you have in mind and it might not be. And but either way, you know, that's what's gonna happen. And i um, there's a generosity to that that I think is really kind of amazing. And it's great to be a part of. And I hope it comes across as 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 fun to you know, to the readers who who see the end product. And not only that, but see the stories kind of, you know, um seed each other and inform each other over time.
0: I can't imagine it's entirely without the uh, kind of stress and strain of it it, it, it it it's not easy to play in a common sandbox all of the time. So especially as you're working on, i mean, I, I suppose for you, you know, when you've worked collaboratively on projects, it's often, um you know non-fiction related. Yeah. So maybe that's a little bit easier to break up and work on individual pieces. I, you know, was able to um um talk you know high republic with um with Kevin Scott a while back mm-hmm. and that that's something that I'm really fascinated about is that, that idea of being able to have a common sandbox when you are trying to tell these huge stories i mean i mean you know, not to not to derail back to the sequels but you know kind of i i i see a similarity in terms of like having different uh, writers different directors for a three-part story
1: yeah. Um, yeah
0: and things can be there's a whole spectrum of like you know how how well can it be done how how cohesive can it be but the thing that strikes me is that I don't know if you can say that it's a natural process. You would never you would never look at something like Lord of the Rings and be like, oh yeah, it makes sense to me that three different authors wrote the three different books. Like we would look at that and we'd be like, yeah. it would be more cohesive if one person took care of it. Yeah. So in your experience, when you've been in these situations where you are very much aware that this is a common sandbox and that for whatever reason, there's something that kind of strains that how do you deal with that?
1: Um, I mean, I mean, look, we're all human, so you certainly get attached to characters that are dear to you, particularly if they're your own creations. Um, you know, and sure, it can be, you know, you definitely, if you're reading something and somebody is has taken something you introduced and run with it, you definitely kind of lean forward and are like, hmm, how's this going to go? Um, it hasn't happened that much to me with characters Um, it's more um concepts but i mean you know there are different ways of approaching it i mean the first and most important thing is is you kind of know that's the ground rules when you're going in yeah and you know if you're not it's kind of like being tall enough for this ride like you know you know it from the start and you can kind of make your decision there um but You know, I will, I'll also whenever I can, I'll go out of my way uh, to try to make sure character works uh, for someone like I I did a Ray Sloan short story. Um, You know, I ran that story by john Jackson Miller, who had really kind of who would introduce Sloan to us um, to make sure it kind of tracked. um, uh, With with how he saw the character which you know, there was some professional courtesy in that, but it was mostly trying to serve fans and readers and make sure that I got it right. Um, I did the same thing with, uh, Claudia Gray has a wonderful kind of cameo character that Contessa, who I wanted to use in, a, um, in the Empire Strikes Back uh, from a certain point of view story with Wedge. Mm-hmm. Like I thought she'd be a great character to kind of smack Wedge into and see what happened. But that meant I also wanted to explore her backstory a little, and there I really wanted to run that by Claudia and make sure um, she was cool with that. Um, so you, you know, you do some of that, but again, it was it was mostly to just kind of make sure you're, you know, you're not foreclosing something in the storytelling, or and you know, and you're doing justice to those characters. But it's also just really fun. I mean, you know, my goodness. I mean, you know, when. Um, when you know characters show up or concepts show up that you had something to do with in some other thing, it's just amazing. Like I tell a story all the time. Like you know, if I if I inscribe, if I left it up to the collective to inscribe my gravestone, it would probably say like, "I told you you should have checked the Western Reaches," because um, you know I made those up for the Essential Atlas um, just to kind of fill out the galaxy with like geographic stuff and then there's Harrison Ford saying it on screen and that is so cool yeah I was like are you kidding me like really you know and you know that's that's something I'll I'll I'll, that's a pinch me moment I'll have for my entire life and um you know the Hux's dad shows up on tv you know a character you know that I you know kind of did a lot with in servants of the empire and there he is you know talking about his program and stuff like that i mean that's just amazing and um you know it's personally gratifying but it's also you know it's just so much fun to be a part of this giant tapestry and know that there are all these threads getting added to it all over the place
0: it was a good reminder then that while there can be that tension and it's not easy to always share there's also the joy then when those moments you know when they are picked up by other people and it's it's fun that uh you aren't the one who like the character or the concept doesn't have to live and die with you but when somebody else picks it up you can see how it has been woven in to everybody else's collective understanding
1: yeah no it's just it's great and and once again um you know i had a you know i co-write a mets blog and I promise this is going somewhere. I co-write a Mets blog, and um, you know, when I was a kid, everybody thought I would be a sports writer. So I love baseball, I love the Mets. Um, you know, I was a decent journalist, and that seemed like the career path. And I didn't. I decided not to do that because I learned early on that one of the cardinal rules of sports writing is you are not a fan. Like you are mm-hmm. a neutral observer, and you do not the you know the line is there's no cheering in the press box. And I did not want to do that. I did not want to stop being a Mets fan. And there was no way I was signing up for that. And so I didn't. Um, when I got the chance to work on Star Wars, that was very much in my mind. I thought, you know, if this works out, I'm going to know how the sausage is made. I'm going to yeah. see behind the scenes. I'm going to know stuff. And it's entirely possible that, you know, I will. That'll make it somewhere between hard and impossible to be a fan of this franchise that means the world to me. And I thought long and hard, do I really wanna do that? Um, and obviously I did it, but the wonderful outcome of that is that I love Star Wars far, far more for seeing how it's put together. And it goes back to that generosity and the fact that you know I've literally never met anyone involved with it for whom it was a paycheck, a widget, et cetera. Like I, No, I've never met anyone who doesn't genuinely love it and want to do right for it. And, you know, that's such a great starting point. And I think there are lots of franchises that can't say that. Um, But it's amazing. And it's amazing and humbling to be a part of, but it makes me happy as a creator, as a, a writer, but also as a reader and as a fan, which I, you know, have never stopped being and never will stop being.
0: Well, and you've certainly been able to leave your mark with all of these different, um, you know, we've talked about novelizations. Now you've written junior novels with, um, have you, have you written adult novels?
1: I've not written an adult novel that's not a novelization. That's, that's kind of the biggest thing on my bucket list is I would love to do that and uh, believe, and I have some characters I would love to dive into. So maybe someday, but you know there are a huge number of people who want to do that and if i get my chance i will be ecstatic but if not i will be you know ecstatic reading all the great books um out there including i'm about to d- dive into this one
0: yes yeah, so like...
1: really excited have you read this not yet yeah Any? Anyway, yeah i mean, I mean look at the... how cool is this it's so cool and, you know star says that all the time so
0: Awesome. Well, yeah, well, you'll have to put Obi-Wan and Satine on that list just for me because (laughs) that's, that's, I think that would be a great, uh, you know, novel and to, to do it at a level beyond the junior novelizations would be fabulous. So, but then, so, so, I mean, yeah, you've kind of got that divide between like, there are specifically like reference books, Mm -hmm. you know, like the, the character encyclopedia for clone wars, um, which that that's fun. I mean, that, that you did you did both of them, right? You you originated yep. it and then did the update after season seven. I mean, how big of a project was that?
1: uh you know the update was really interesting because I mean the original it was um sorry more props um like the original was super fun and uh, I I love this book but it was fairly early on in Clone Wars and I remember um I remember one one funny exchange with that I had with the editors was you know, God, there are about 20 clone pilots in there. I know. And about clone pilot 10, I was like, I have nothing I can say about these clone pilots. They're literally the same person. They're quite literally the same person. Like, what do you want me to say? They fly a fighter and they die. That's what they do. Um, but so by the time we got to 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 upgrade it for Join the Battle, like there were so many more characters that we were able to, you know, we, we had such a broader... Um, range to choose from that that was great and a huge relief but also you know like just changing it up so we could also you know not everybody needed a whole page we could do little capsules etc um that was great plus it was also it was just such a blast to kind of go through you know my memories of the entire show and like you know writing even this little capsule biography of a minor character would remind me of that episode and that arc and all those connections and you know, make me want to dive back into the show all over again, which I mean is really what a Star Wars book should do. Mm -hmm. It should make you, you know, it should leave you with like, you know, a big list of things you want to check out, not as homework, but because it sounds really fun, whether those are movies or shows or other books or comics or what have you.
0: So when you do that, do you start basically just with, uh, like, 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 do you start with a rewatch on your own or are you starting with things like Wikipedia or how do you, how do you go about holding all of that information in your mind as you kind of plan this, this, this encyclopedia that can't say everything. It can't have everybody in there, but it yeah. also has to be comprehensive.
1: Um, well, you know, as you say, you know, every a book, even something where only one person has their name on the cover, which is so unfair, is a collaboration. So, you know, for those books, I mean, there was, you know, terrific editors at DK. I mean, David Fenneman was the editor on the, on the Clone Wars book. Um, you know, you've got wonderful collaborators at, at DK, at whatever your publisher is at Lucasfilm, we're gonna help you through that. Um, so there's a lot of fun, you know, picking characters and making sure you have the whole range, um, you know, leaving room for favorites you might just want to put in, um, places where you can expand the lore somewhere. Like, is there a character who doesn't have a name, which might be fun to do, et cetera. Um, but then also just kind of, you know, thinking about, you know, what's this character's purpose? What do you want to say about them? What's the feeling you want from this? Um, But one of the great things about being a Star Wars author um, working in lore is that every project is different. Like I've worked on projects that arrive pretty heavily outlined and you're kind of filling in the blanks. I mean, sometimes literally like books like this, it's always kind of interesting. They show up with this sort of pig Latin. You know, and then you kind of replace it and, you know, make the line scan, etc, cetera. You know, and then there are books that are totally open ended, um, like Essential Guide to Warfare started out, that was originally going to be the Essential Guide to the Military. Um, Karen Travis was going to write it. And then she and, and Star Wars kind of parted ways. And the book kind of, you know, got passed over to me. Um, but that was really all there was. And, you know, I wanted to reimagine that book um, for a couple of reasons. One was I had my own ideas about um, approaches I thought would be fun to take. And I also, I wanted to create some distance there. Like I didn't want people to get the book uh, with the title of Karen's book. And then, cause I knew immediately they would, as we all do, they would like compare it to whatever they had in their minds about what Karen's book would have been. Um, And so, you know, we got to start kind of totally fresh there around that basic concept and and go from there. Um, So, but I love that there's a huge range there. Sometimes, you know, you're kind of the music is written and your job is to kind of, you know, learn the dance moves and make them work. And sometimes it's like completely open-ended and you just kind of go, but again, always with the team helping you out. I think
0: that that's something that is it still strikes me as really strange that in the past there has been a pretty significant divide between the idea of you know I, I just think about the idea of like fan fiction and that kind of stuff where it's like it 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 always struck me as a little bit funny that there used to be this divide between like you've got fiction writers you got the people who are creating their own worlds and their own stories and then you have the people who they they can't do that or they don't want to do that they just want to use other people's characters and mm-hmm. it always struck me as kind of funny that like these kinds of tie-in novels these tie-in books they're not new they they they've been around for literally generations mm-hmm. today i feel like there is a bit of that wall being dismantled when we see things like i mean we we've got a number of of books that have made the jump from Raylo fan fiction into um real published works um and I wonder you know is that changing at all in in publishing as people are looking at it like like because because to me I've always seen it as even more impressive when you know maybe you start out writing fan fiction but it's it's the mark of being able to take already created characters in an already existing universe and write in the sandbox to you know you're playing in the sandbox you're you're within those parameters so the the goal and i think the kind of the ingenious part of it is that the success comes from being able to seamlessly meld a story into something that is already created what are your thoughts on you know either that divide between those or like you know the way that people today are looking at um kind of that, that divide between straight fiction and IP?
1: Um, I don't know. That's an interesting one. I mean, it's funny. Like I came up as a writer, fan fiction was still sort of verboten. Like you didn't,
0: you
1: know, if you graduated, like you didn't talk about it, you certainly didn't call attention to what you did. And I mean, those walls are, are, are down thoroughly. And I think it's great that they are. I mean, you know, like, like Claudia is a great example of someone who, Mm -hmm. you know, um, really kind of learned to hit all her marks, as far as I know, on fan fiction and, um, and Star Wars writers who still write it, um, because they love to. And that's great. I mean, I think the, you know, the, the amazing thing there that I think is so important for writers is just, you know, presenting your stuff to an audience and learning how it's received. um, And, and taking that into account. I mean, I think that's absolutely critical to any writer, and you know, fan fiction is an amazing way to do that. Um, you know, and for me, that's not. I mean, I think the real advantage there, and is that, I mean, I imagine it's pretty hard to go out on the internet with wholly original stuff and get somebody to read it and critique it. But if you're in a sandbox that people know and love. Then that's a great way to do it, and and my God, I mean, what a great tool for a writer! As well as so much fun. I've, um, I've
0: recommended that to so many people yeah. because you know that you're going to have already created interest in yeah. what you're writing.
1: Yeah, but you know, just you know, be ready for it. There are people who are not going to like what you do, and they're going to let you know, and that's okay. You know, start developing your rhino skin early because you're going to need it. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, it also, it jives with something I, I tell, you know I do classroom visits and stuff that I tell people all the time. Like if you've written something and shared it with someone and taken in their reaction, you're a writer. like That's the test. I don't, you don't, it's not if you can go to like Barnes and Noble or Amazon and find a book by you. That's not, no, no. that's a diff, that's a, that's a subset of writing. But if you've done that, if you've written something shared it with someone, got a reaction, you're a writer. Um, and I, and I, I firmly believe that. And, you know, there are so many more ways to do that now. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. Um,
0: well, and I'll just mention that as someone in publishing, I think that that's even more true, because in today's day and age, like it's it's hard it is hard to get published. It's hard to make a living as an author. Um, It's hard that often published authors are the ones who already have a social media following. And it's like, you really have to get into that mentality of like, why do you write? And a writer is someone who writes because they can't not write. And if that's you, then you're a writer, no matter if you have something published, no matter if you, you know, make your living doing it, you are a writer.
1: Yep. No, absolutely. And it's, it's a, a good place to be, forgive me for my my little PSA. I eventually, I got so many questions on this that I eventually just put it on my sub stack because I thought it would be useful. Is, you know, one of the things they get all the time is I want to write Star Wars, how do I do that? And similarly, you know, what I tell people is don't try to do what I did because, you know, I think I could rerun the script a hundred times and it wouldn't ever work. Um, you know, I got to write Star Wars because I was a journalist, that's why. Um, you know, I could work with others. I could I could hit my deadlines, et cetera. The fact that I was also a huge Star Wars fan was a coincidence. Um, in fact, if anything, huge fandom can kind of get in your way, because you know it can make people rigid, and rigidity is not going to work uh, in writing. Because as we've been discussing, it's so collaborative, and there's some give and take there, and you have to be able to do that. Um, but what I tell people is, as you say, as you say very well you know, write because you love it, that's right because you have to, because that's what's going to sustain you. Um, And, you know, that can be existing IP or that can be a local newspaper or it can be your own creations, whatever it is, but write write because you love it and be willing to work on that and be willing to find the time and stay up late and everything else and keep going and do that. And that's the part you can control and everything else, whether it's your own creations, and I I know this all too well, or IP, like you cannot control things at a certain point very soon after it leaves your hands. Um, You can't control how it'll be marketed, how it'll be packaged. You certainly can't control how it'll be received. Uh, The part you can control is the work, the imagining and the work and the enjoyment of it. And so I just tell people do that and then do that, let it, it's be be its own reward, and eventually, maybe if some things line up uh, in ways that it's very hard to make happen, like you know, maybe the stars align and you can write Star Wars or you know whatever IP it is. But if you go into that as the starting point, I mean, it's a recipe for disappointment. Not because you're not good, you may well be, but because so many things outside your control have to work.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing too is that again, being in publishing just looking at the numbers, I have had friends who have kind of lamented, like, oh, you know, I'm, you know, I'd love to write, I'd love to get published. And I'll, you know, I'll tell them, you know, make sure you're doing it, not, you know, because you want to make a profit, but because you have something more, because it might not happen. But even beyond that, like, I've looked at people's, like, numbers on, on, you know, their, their fan fictions. And I'm like, I need you to understand that you have more eyeballs on your work now (laughs) than 98 percent of people who get published and part you know part of that is like I feel like people don't really recognize that I think that you know people generally if they don't know publishing they do just think that like oh it's like any other you know professional work you do it and you are getting paid and you're getting paid well and unfortunately like that's just not how it always happens so it's one of those things where you kind of have to interrogate yourself and say, like, what is my measure of success here? Why am I doing it? And then I think that when you do look at things like that, sometimes it does actually give you a reason to kind of push even more into those volunteer, but, you know, really meaningful opportunities like fan fiction, where if you know that, like, you're getting your community through that, if you know that you're, you're, making people happy and they're actually able to leave comments and tell you that you don't get comments usually on books that just go out the door you know bound with paper and ink like it's now now you might get that based on a social media presence but i just think that like some people like fan fiction is not something to thumb your nose at because there really are benefits to being able to have that in with the people that you want to create for.
1: Yep. No, that's perfectly set. Absolutely.
0: So, oh. yeah, so fascinating. I mean, I I really appreciate that. Um, you know, there, there's so much here. You know, you just you know th- that that kind of hyper focus when it's like you get into this one world. Well, there's something for everybody. Whether you are interested in fan fiction or you're interested in, I mean, you see all of the <laughs> YouTube videos and and the you see the creators of different kinds of things. Um, I don't know for you, you know, you, you've done the reference books. Do you see a difference between like reference and nonfiction? I'm thinking of things like, you know, the difference between the encyclopedias and the timelines as opposed to things like, you know, Bounty Hunter's Code or things like that, where it's like, it's not really a reference book per se, but it's not quite fiction either. It's kind of somewhere like in the middle where it's like you're contributing the nonfiction, you're, you're contributing to this world yeah, but it's it's somewhere in the middle. Do you see a difference between all of those things, or do they all just kind of mesh together?
1: You know it's I mean, it's it's a spectrum, certainly. I mean, I think all reference books work better um, if there's at least a nominal kind of in universe starting point. I mean, both for you know, plausible deniability, creative ambiguity, um, like I said, I mean, you you can't be crazy about that. like, I mean, you mentioned Star Wars Timelines, uh, my latest book, I mean, this amazing collaboration with this kind of dream team of authors that I loved uh, for DK. But like, you know, that book, frankly, would have been really annoying in the style of the Boundary Hunters code. Like, if oh, you yeah. know, there's margin notes. To no, that's, that's not what I want in a, um, you know, in a, in a book called Timelines. So there's definitely, you know, th- there are lines kind of not to cross there. But at the same time, like, I mean, it's, it's star wars it's super fun and like we said you know the whole idea is to get people to want to engage with it more so you know to me like a, an absolutely like cold flat just the facts treatment of star wars i mean i don't, I don't think that particularly works but i don't think any of the reference books i worked on were like that I and mean, maybe the rpg stuff a little in the beginning but maybe, it's kind of its yeah. own animal
0: what is the stuff that you particularly love to work on characters eras like what is the thing where it's like that's that's what i want
1: oh well i mean this will sound like a cop-out but i mean the joy of star wars is that you know it's um there's something to love everywhere Mm -hmm. like i mean i i like to say what are we up to now 11 movies is that right and how wonderful it is that i've got to like kind of do the math in my head (laughs) as opposed to being like there are three what are you talking about um but you know, I like to say, kiddingly but truthfully, that Attack of the Clones is my eleventh favorite Star Wars movie. You know, when there's a new one, I'm pretty sure Attack of the Clones will be my twelfth favorite Star Wars movie.
0: <laughs> hey, now we're gonna we're gonna have to revamp that.
1: You, you get where I'm going, but yeah. you know, I have done a lot of work on a lot of books that has drawn heavily on Attack of the Clones, and I've had a blast doing that. It is so much fun. So, you know, even something that doesn't necessarily connect with me the way the other 10 do um, is still so much fun. So, you know, I never limit myself in Star Wars that way because, I mean, if if that's true, you know, everything is true. Um, That said, you know, I grew up with the original trilogy. Um, You know, Han Solo is my favorite character as a kid. You know the number one thing on my list if i ever got to do it would be a han novel which i would just love to do um i'd love to do like a job of the hut novel kind of talented mr ripley style where like you know the psychotic villain is the protagonist and you realize you're rooting for the wrong person and how do you do that um i think it'd be a lot of fun i'd love to write a um a tally lintra book i actually outlined a tally lintra kind of origin book that i thought would be amazingly fun to do
0: you do know that there's someone on twitter who's going to be very excited that you said that right oh
1: i do believe me um <laughs> believe me yeah i uh yeah we we have the same interests in mind but um if it's not me it should be somebody because i want to read that book um yeah. yeah i mean you know i'm just i mean there, there's so many characters like that that i would I would love to see the the han thing is actually a, a funny quick story i wrote um the We'll do props again. I wrote The Weapon of the Jedi, which, Mm -hmm. by the way, is the secret prequel to The Last Jedi novelization. I could not have written that novelization uh, without this book because the force is essentially a character in this book. And I feel like Mm -hmm. if I did my job, it is in The Last Jedi novelization too. But there's a direct through line between those two books um, that I found really rewarding. But so, you know, Weapon of a Jedi came out um in the run-up to force awakens and it has this kind of frame story uh for force awakens around it and um i was asked if i wanted to write this and it was going to be the first you know luke skywalker's first new canon lightsaber duel um i was like sure of course because why wouldn't but the um the thing that i was immediately struck by is i'd never really been a luke guy Mm -hmm. like i didn't really quite feel like I got the character. And I always, I was more a Han guy. I was like, I thought Luke should have like run off with Han and been a space pirate because it sounded way more fun than like hanging around and taking orders. Why would you do that? Um, but you know, I was, I was no fool. I was like, yeah, I'll write it. And so I took myself to like Luke boot camp and watched the movies and really studied Mark Hamill and, and what Lucas wanted from the character, et cetera. And it was great because I wound up with this appreciation of Luke that I, hadn't quite had, despite having been, you know, a stars fan my whole life, and that was wonderful. But I had started out as a Han guy. So I was telling this story, probably in a somewhat more coherent fashion at a con, and I was sitting next to um, Greg Rucka, um, who wrote this, who wrote the Han book. And um, Greg has this wonderful gravelly voice, and he keeps looking at me. We're literally sharing a microphone. He keeps looking at this story and he goes, finally he takes the mic and he goes, he goes, that's really funny to hear, because I'd always been a loot guy, and when they approached me about writing the Han book, I didn't quite know what to say. <laughs> and uh, Mike Siglain, the Lucasfilm creative director, is monitoring the panel, and he's looking over us. And finally, he leans over to the mic, and he goes, "Why didn't one of you two idiots say something?" <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I think we're both glad we didn't, because that's a great example. Like you know, we wound up kind of pushing ourselves, and emerged from that with this you know love of character that you know had always been there at Star Wars, but hadn't been nearly as intense um, as it had been before. So you know, as long as I can hear the the Star Wars music in my in my head and close my eyes and see. You know, space battles and humming lightsabers and wonderful vistas. Like I'm all in. I'll make it work. There are great stories there, and it's just a privilege to get to play with them.
0: And I think that uh, too. It it is nice when you have those moments where you really have to focus in on a character and you have to say, you know, this this character might not be the one that most naturally comes to me, but that you know that you have you know it's a it's a gift and a duty to get into their mind and to make it work. And in the process, you do develop that that appreciation for them it, I mean it, for, for me it's taken you know similar form when I like I'll do theater and get a yeah. part that I didn't want or you know get a part that I just yeah. oh, like you know why'd they cast me as this person um and then th- there is something though that when you when it's an assignment to focus on that character even if it's not a character that you naturally gravitate towards there really is something that like you latch onto them like, okay, you're mine now. And there yeah. is something really fun about that. And that, yeah. that's why it doesn't surprise me when authors, you know, creators, when when they get asked, like, who's your favorite? It doesn't, it never surprises me when people are like, they're all my favorite. Like, it's like choosing a kid because you get attached to them in different yeah. ways. Even if left to your own natural tendencies, you'd focus on something else.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, the, the theater example is perfect. That's right. You may not get the part you want but if you you do your job you're going to emerge from that with a you know a greater understanding appreciation which is you know whether it's theater or books is also so much fun
0: mm-hmm. yeah and 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 like i said earlier you know collaborative like there's there's yeah. something in this that it's it's about community and it's it's fun that like the franchise that we all love and celebrate and criticize in equal measure Um, because that's the way it's supposed to be. It's, it's, it's fun that it, it results in community, but that, you know, it's, it's something that it's an individualized love, but it's, it's a process and a love and a, uh, you know, it's something that just has to be inherently communal. And if it's, if it wasn't, I certainly don't think that I would have, you know, had the same kind of fervor for this, um, this franchise the way that i have over even the last four years let alone 40
1: yeah 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 no it's it's a wonderful community and um there's also i mean there's a part of it as a writer that's additionally rewarding because i mean writing by its nature is you know is lonely it's just you in front of a screen and a keyboard and you just you got to kind of you know bring something out of the realm of maybe into making it actually exist. And that's that's hard. And it demands long hours by yourself. And so, you know, it is a even more of a joy to get to go to a con or a signing, et cetera, and talk to talk to fellow Star Wars fans about something that we both love. I mean it's, you know, I I've, I've never had an experience where I haven't come back like energized and you know, wanting to tell more stories or, you know, if there's not something immediately on my plate, wanting to go back and enjoy old ones. And, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm very grateful for this community.
0: I think that we can all agree with that. Um, as we're wrapping up, just a couple of questions that I'm, I'm curious about. Is there anything that you're working on, you know, now that you can talk about or anything else that you want to promote that uh, already has come out?
1: Um, I mean check out timelines. It was mm-hmm. super fun. And I mean, we've been talking about uh about you know collaboration, just an astonishing example of that. I mean, not just the you know the, the team of authors working together, but I mean these wonderful, wonderful people at DK. I mean, Ruth Amos and and, and Matt Jones and a, a huge team over there that kept this kind of impossible project on um, track and you know. I mean, books are so profoundly unfair. Like, I, I think we're, I'm hoping we're gonna do some timeline stuff in the near future and, you know, it'll be if some authors sitting on a Zoom or maybe, you know, hopefully at a table, et cetera, but there's such a huge team of people who work so hard behind authors. And, you know, I'm incredibly grateful to all those people um, for everything they do. And, um, Yeah. Now there should be more, more names on covers and not just in the back because I mean, it's absolutely essential. Uh, But that book was a blast and just huge, huge amount of fun. And um, like all Star Wars reference books, you know, showed up immediately out of date, which is one of the frustrations of it. Like, you know, the new stuff you can't get in, but um, you know, while I was working on, on my segment of that, I, you know, I had that experience, which I hope other people have was like, oh yeah, I got to Go watch that Clone Wars episode again, or I gotta go. Yeah, you know, check out that comic I'd forgotten about, and you know, just dive back in and uh, and enjoy things. Um, in terms of current projects, I'm working on some geography stuff, which I can't really talk about. But yeah, it is, is super exciting, and I hope it bear fruit in the not so distant future. And then you know, um, who knows? Hopefully, a con near you, if you happen to be where the con is and uh some other things (laughs) Um, like
0: that that was just very ambiguous
1: that was a little (laughs) ambiguous it'll it'll make sense soon but um,
0: yeah
1: yeah people will get it but um no it's just you know as i said at the very beginning i mean i just feel incredibly lucky to get to do this and you know incredibly lucky that i remain you know get to be a creator but remain a reader and a fan and a viewer and you know, all these great things. And, um, you know, that's, that's as much a privilege as all the rest of it.
0: Well, I think that that is a mentality that uh, is the best way to approach, I mean, being able to contribute to a franchise like this. I mean, there's nothing better than being able to do that and have it only increase your love of the world that you're working in. So, Jason, thank you so much for having this conversation tonight. Thank you so much for all of the work and the joy that you've given us over the years with your your works and um certainly look forward to seeing what else that you have on the horizon but um to our listeners thank you so much for for uh supporting us and you can reach out let us know what you think at uh twitter at rule the galaxy you can find me at dark saber light and we'll be back next week with another episode may the force be with you